everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Pattern Recognition, a show that connects the dots that lead to good business decision-making. I'm your host, John Hu, growth equity investor at Norwest Venture Partners and former investment banker, Goldman Sachs. So before we get started today, I just wanted to ask a quick favor of you and that if you are enjoying the show, I'd greatly appreciate if you could take two seconds to leave a rating and review. And in return, I promise you that the podcast will never, ever have ads. So we've sung the merits of a subscription-based business model all throughout the podcast, ranging from how subscriptions generate predictable and recurring revenue, all the way to how the model structurally aligns a direct relationship between a company and its consumer in a way that leads to better product development. Now, what we haven't spoken so much on in regards to subscriptions is a subscription within the context of a media business where consumers are subscribing for content as opposed to any sort of product or service. But as many of you know, subscription media is a tough and fickle industry to play in, which is why I've pulled in David Gardner, the founder and CEO at The Motley Fool, as today's podcast guest. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar, The Motley Fool is one of the largest financial media conglomerates that set out on the task of democratizing financial advice for the masses, David himself founded the company alongside his brother back in 1993 and has led the business through both the dot-com bubble and the Great Recession, while pioneering the subscription model decades before direct-to-consumer subscriptions were in vogue. So it's no surprise that The Fool has become the internet's go-to portal for investing advice in addition to raising its own venture capital fund. So in today's podcast, David and I chat about The Fool's history and how its roots as a dot-com breakout have led to its inventive and innovative culture. Additionally, we'll dive into the specific strategies David looks for in picking his own stocks, which have led to him consistently beating the market year over year. So why don't we get started? Hey, David, how's it going? Really well, John. So good to meet you. It's also fantastic to have a fellow Tar Heel on, so I appreciate you taking some time. Yep. Tar Heel born, Tar Heel bred. Well then, David, why don't we hear a little bit about your background and how you came to found Motley Fool? Sure. So my background, preschool, I was born into a family here in Washington, D.C., which is kind of the area where the Motley Fool remains based 26 years later. But my brother and sister and I grew up right in Washington, D.C. We went to good schools. Eventually, we got kicked away to have to go away to school for high school, which we did. And I had a great time at St. Mark's School in Southborough, Massachusetts. And from that, I got really lucky and I got a full Moorhead Kane Scholarship to the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. It's given for leadership. That's the purpose of the scholarship. But for me, it was an incredibly attractive full ride with summers. And one of those summers was working on Wall Street. And my aim at the time had been to graduate UNC Chapel Hill and go to work on Wall Street. And that summer, after my sophomore year, spending time with Solomon Brothers on Wall Street, that's the summer I learned I will never go to work on Wall Street. So that was very valuable but yeah, I mean, from there, I was an English major. So John, you know, I'm all out humanities, liberal arts. But part of what we learn as humanities students is you can pick up almost anything and learn it. You can make connections across the liberal arts. I mean, that's the spirit of it. And so, you know, why would an English major start a company called The Motley Fool that gives investment advice? And the short answer to that is simply that our dad taught us how to invest as kids. He invested for us from birth. So at age zero, unbeknownst to me, he was saving and investing, building a portfolio. And then by age 18, he said, here you go. It's yours. This is all you're ever getting from me. Anything that I have left when I die is going to go to your kids, so don't screw up. But we were raised on the stock market. So we were facile with 
balance sheets and income statements and these kinds of things, even though we were English majors, both Tom and me, I at UNC Chapel, Tom at Brown University. So Motley Fool has been around for quite a while. So I'd love to talk more about the cycles you all have witnessed from the founding of the business all the way through the dot-com boom, through 9-11, and then the Great Recession and beyond. Yeah. So I think there are three distinct cycles for our company, and you kind of just outlined them a little bit there, John. But the first one was just you know early stage startup. And what I want briefly to say about that was that we didn't start with the intention of being a business. We started a newsletter. It was called The Motley Fool. I was the one who pulled the name, just flipping through the book of quotations one night. I was like, oh, I remember my Shakespeare studies at North Carolina. and I love the fools. I still go to Shakespeare plays. I do these days, but I've always enjoyed the court jesters, the fools in Shakespeare's plays who were wise, ironically, and they had a good sense of humor. They could tell the king or queen the truth. They were the trusted ear, the trusted advisor, the only one who wouldn't have his head lopped off if he told the truth, in some cases, to royalty. So I love that position. So it was a lark. It was a newsletter. Turns out it was a newsletter for our parents' friends because they were the only ones who pay us $48 a year for our advice. Our peers certainly weren't going to be paying us 48 bucks a year for our stock picks. But we started as The Motley Fool, just a newsletter. But what really happened at that point was the internet. And it was even pre-web. So it was private online services like America Online, which was the big dog at the time. And we basically played a prank on America Online. We invented a fake penny stock and we hyped it because we didn't like the penny stock pump and dump schemes that we could see were emerging in the early days of the medium. So we were satirical, as you'd expect The Motley Fool to be, and it ended up getting national coverage. It got written up in The Wall Street Journal and in Forbes. And all of a sudden, we were on the radar as this new thing happening on AOL. And that probably surprised AOL because we were just paying customers at the time. So they said, hey, let's, these guys just got written up in the Wall Street Journal. Let's have lunch with them. It happened to be that we were all in the Washington, D.C. area, very fortunate for us. So it was an easy lunch with AOL. And they said, hey, would you guys like to open up the Motley Fool on AOL? And later that would become a, a big dog. You know, It's hard for the little guy to do that kind of a conversation. But this was such early days for AOL. They barely had like keywords or areas. There was, I'm not even sure finance was demarcated as like an online area of AOL. That's how early it was. So yeah, era one was basically getting jump started thanks to a new medium. And then AOL was like, we're investing in you guys, which they did. We were on the cover of Fortune magazine within two years of starting that newsletter for our parents' friends, which is amazing to think back on. But it was just a raging, you know, dot com success for the first five years. And we were spending all of our time kind of trying to get offline as fast as possible. So we were writing books, syndicated newspaper column, coast to coast radio show, these kinds of things. So we were the uncompany because everybody else was a big media company trying to figure out online. And we were a tiny online company trying to go big into the media. And era one ends, John. And by the way, I'm not going to tell the whole shaggy dog three era story. I want you to interpose your next question and jumpstart me from era one. Era one ends with the tragedy of 2001, which had a lot of human tragedy in our nation. The stock market closed for like a week and we had brutal layoffs, which we had three different layoffs, each time laying off about 100 people. And each time we did, we're like, well, we're not going to have to do that again. And unfortunately, it wasn't until the third time that we said that, that we were finally right. So our company, having gone from two brothers and their college friends who started, ran up to 435 employees by 2001 and then shaved down to 85 employees in the wreckage of the dot-com era and really the wreckage, uh, the human toll that uh, even here at the Pentagon got hit. Washington, D.C. was a dystopia 
in the fall of 2001. And that's where we were left at the end of era one. So a key takeaway for me there was how you guys were 20 years ahead of the curve when it comes to content marketing with the AOL story where I think nowadays startups practicing growth marketing would absolutely love the coverage that you guys got. So then honing in on this whole dot-com era, could you share a few key takeaways, including, let's say, any lessons learned in regards to managing a layoff in a bust cycle? Yeah, so let's go last in, first out. So advice for entrepreneurs, especially around layoffs. I mean, First bit of advice is try not to ever get in that situation. I mean, it, it was brutal. We were venture fueled. So we'd taken in uh, tens of billions of dollars of venture capital over multiple rounds from really good people that were on our board and happily so. We welcomed them. In fact, we invested alongside them, which is tip number two. If you can invest alongside your VCs, that's a great thing to do because then you're really invested with their viewpoint as well as your own as a founder. Of course, that's a tough trick for a lot of people to pull. But so Try not to ever get in a situation where you are running out of money. But at the time, our revenues in the tens of millions were unfortunately half of our costs. And we were expecting the next round. And the timing of 2001 just hit us right between the eyes. So as a consequence, we had to start laying off. Tip number three is when you lay off, do it in a loving way, you know, because we really appreciated these people moving their families. In some cases, we had some family members that we were laying off at the time. But there was a lovely article in the Washington Post about that, and it was just talking about how much people, ironically, who'd just been laid off by the Motley Fool really loved the company and really would miss it. We kept good relationships with them out the door. We said, we hope we can have you back. And I think for me and Tom, one of our real pleasures here now, 20 plus years later, is a bunch of them did come back and now have been with us for almost 20 years. So, you know, do it in a loving way. I guess another bit of perspective that I have is know your business model. I mean, the business model that we were operating off of was ultimately what hurt us so badly. We were a free site at the time. And so we were hoping for ad revenue. We had just a few big advertisers, kind of the big brokers that we think of today, like Schwab, for example, those kinds of companies, Ameritrade. And all of a sudden in 2001, people, the stock market was so bad that people weren't even opening up their brokerage statements or their 401k statements. And so they weren't checking online sites during that kind of uh, atmosphere. And so as a consequence, our few advertisers said, guys, we're just not going to re-up this quarter. We're like, what? You know, you're, you're paying us millions of dollars. You did last year. You did last quarter. You're not going to advertise. They're like, we don't even have money to advertise. Like, we're trying to batten down the hatches ourselves. So that's really what hurt us so badly. And so we shifted our model. and Maybe we'll broach our way into era two shortly. But era two starts with a revision of our business model. So again, less entrepreneur know your business model, and make sure it's the right one. Yeah, I think we're picking up on a pretty consistent theme here where you guys have been ahead of the market on multiple fronts. So content marketing first with the AOL story, but also now the shift to subscriptions, where as opposed to nowadays, back in the day when you made that model switch, charging consumers on the internet a subscription decades ago was very unheard of. So could you talk more about how you made that switch within the context of Era 2? Yeah, we were basically left with many fewer employees, a lot of empty desks, a lot of computers just stacked up on the side of our office space, trying to figure out what we needed to do next. And I remember we huddled with our smaller team then, and our leader at the time, Scott Shedler, who was, we basically elevated to president, our CEO who was hired outside the company, a good guy with just bad timing, laid himself off at the end and said, guys, I'm out. I wasn't expecting anything like this. So our smaller team said, 
let's place seven $1 million bets. Let's just try seven new things. And I don't even remember at least five of them right now, but I can tell you one of them was, let's start a newsletter. Ironically, The Motley Fool started as a paper newsletter mailed to our parents' friends who were paying us money directly. So let's just try that. And, and at the time, we said we'd already published a number of books through Simon & Schuster, so we were used to having an external publisher. So The Motley Fool in 2002 wasn't ready to be its own publisher. We were just like we leaned on Simon & Schuster. We leaned on a company called Philips. They do health and financial newsletters. It's kind of their publishing business. So we said, let's partner with them and start a Motley Fool. We call it Stock Advisor newsletter. And so we did. And the good news is that was the million-dollar bet that hit. And in a lot of ways, it makes sense. I mean, it was probably the highest probability one when you think about it. John, it's ironic to think back in that time because these days, of course, subscription is all the rage, as you mentioned, and it's a great model. Back then, to charge for something on the internet sounded like a joke, like you guys don't even understand where the era is moving because everything needs to be free on the internet. And so we could not have charged for a Motley Fool newsletter up until the early 2000s. No way in the 1990s could we have said, yeah, we're a pay site, we're a premium site on the web. But fortunately, the world was turning and there was that opportunity and we were desperate. I mean, we were like, this is something we have to try. And so Phillips did a nice job launching Motley Fool Stock Advisor. We learned some from, you know, a key lesson we learned from them is they were kind of laughing at a couple of the pay products we were trying to offer through Fool Mart, which was our online, like Walmart, but Fool Mart, our online store at the time. They were laughing at how long our research was. Like we were writing 35 pages of research on a stock market industry and charging just like 40 bucks. And they're like, guys, have the length, double the price. And you have to realize that, you know, we're paying, when you pay for financial advice, you want something you can trust. You don't want it to take all your time and you're going to pay up for that. So we had flipped the model with our own kind of noob approach. So they taught us that. And uh, here we are now, 17 years later, Motley Fool Stock Advisor is the flagship of our company. It has the vast majority of our subscribers, our members. Those members have other services too from the Motley Fool, but that $1 million bet has been worth a lot more than a million dollars for us. But it was just, you know, trying something, but something that made organic sense to us. It wasn't a new trick we had to come up with. It was just a different business model. Yeah. And back to your roots. That's right, John. And, and you know, a brief pian, if you will, to subscriptions and subscription models. So, you know, we were used to writing books. Simon Schuster, that was like a product that we had from the Motley Fool. Now, it was technically Simon Schuster's product, right? So $25 hardback book, let's say, we're getting about 10% of that. So we get like two and a half bucks from a book. And then we're giving a little bit to our literary agent. I mean, it's a, you know, a business bestseller, so that's good and sounds good. But we started looking at that going, okay, so they buy from us once. We don't know who buys from us. It's a one-off and it's not even our product. So instead, let's make it our product. So we bought back Stock Advisor from Phillips and we said, here's a better model. We can have people pay us $100 a year. If we do a good job, they will renew from one year to the next. We know who they are. We can create relationships with them. We keep all the money ourselves and pay the costs. This looks like a better model than the Simon & Schuster book approach that we've been taking in the first five years of our company. So, you know, we do love subscription and I know you know a lot about it. So, I mean, part of it is just, it's a, you refresh your revenues from one year to the next if you're doing a good job. You don't have to find new business or hope that your advertisers will keep re-upping. And if you do a good job, people will renew for multiple years sometimes. And really, 
15 years later, I'm, some of our stock advisor members have been with us for almost two decades. So just such a stronger model. And David, we recently had Tianzua, the CEO of Zora, which is a stock you guys cover, and he's been championing the subscription economy for decades. And what really resonated to me about what you said and what Tian preaches is that in your prior model, you were siloed off from your end consumer by a retailer or a book publisher and really had to guess to some degree what exactly your consumers want. But with a direct subscription model, instead, you can iterate with your user and use all of that direct data to build a competitive advantage over time. So I think that transitions us nicely into the third era, which I'm guessing is at the start of the Great Recession. No, I'm going to say the third era. And by the way, I'm kind of making this up. There's no story of the Motley Fool that's been written down, really. And even on our website, we don't even have that much of an about us section. Um, But so you and I are are making things up as we go. But I'm going to say that the second era lasted from 2002 to 2014. And it'll become clear in a sec why I'm saying 2014. But that era was one where we embraced subscription and we began to build out a portfolio of different services. It wasn't just Stock Advisor. It was a dozen different services and at different tiers. So some people pay us thousands of dollars a year. Some people pay us hundreds of dollars a year. And of course, as you'd expect, many, many more people pay us $100 a year than $1,000 a year. But the good news is enough people pay us $1,000 a year that during the Great Recession, the Motley Fool had no layoffs, even though, I mean, (laughs) yeah, some companies much bigger than us went under. So um, Wall Street was going through massive layoffs, and really the whole economy was horrible, as we remember. And my stock market portfolio and my stock pick sure didn't look good during those years. But the good news, luckily for our business, since this is a business story we're telling, is that we just added higher tier services that some of our most faithful, biggest fans among our membership would buy from us. And that all of a sudden added a layer of revenue that we had never had before and that totally took us through 2008-9. And right through into 2014, and the reason that I'm mentioning 2014 is the end of era two, is because this is a whole side story that I think it's fair to say I'm actually arguably debuting on your podcast, John, because I'm not sure this is really a story that we tell very frequently. And we we won't go deep on this, but this is a pattern recognition exclusive. (laughs) For 10 years, we decided to take all of the cash flow that we earned in era two And instead of investing in our business, which is what everybody would want us to do, and we wanted to do it too, instead, we paid off all of the outside capital in our company. And so having taken in 50-some million dollars of venture capital in the 1990s, we paid back nine figures with interest, so nine figures back out to all of our original investors and exited them from the company. We decided we did not want to go public. We decided that we didn't want to, we've never wanted to sell our company. And so it was a neat trick if you could pull it. And there's a lot more we could unpack there, but I feel like it would just be a digression. But it is an amazing story. Since we're a private company, we tend not to tell the story that often, but it was a decision ultimately to fully own the company. And that's, you know, majority family owned, but all of our employees, including who we just hired yesterday, all have shares in the Motley Fool as well. So we are a company and family-owned enterprise with no capital, no outside capital, total agency and autonomy today as we proceed forward from April Fool's Day 2014 when we made that final payment to now. So that's what kicked into era three, the era of autonomy. Wow. Congratulations to you and the team for running a management buyout. 
And I'm glad to hear the culture is one where all employees share in the success of the company, as that's something we found critical for building true alignment of incentives. So shifting more towards what The Motley Fool does, one of the things I love about the internet in general is how it's a true democratizer. Whereas before The Fool, you essentially had to be wealthy and have your own stockbroker to know where the markets were, what stocks were trading at. But with the internet and The Fool, you've now got an equalizer, right? So would love to talk about how The Fool enables the little guy and specifically would love to hear you recount the story of passing Reg FD, which I think stands for Reg Fair Disclosure. Sure. So Reg FD was from, I'm going to say era one, but let's briefly tell that because it connects to what you just said, which is the purpose of our company and how we roll here at The Fool. So Reg FD was basically regulation, fair disclosure or full disclosure, one or the other, maybe both. But ultimately, it was happening at a time, an era in market history where Wall Street analysts would get privileged information from company managers. You know how you give guidance to Wall Street in an earlier era, the late 1990s, that was just direct to Wall Street. And we felt that was pretty unfair. We've always tried to represent people like us, private individual investors, mom and pop investors. And it didn't seem right that you know you would get specialized info if you're in Wall Street from managers, owners, uh, CEOs of companies. And yet we as shareholders, which by the way, we also are owners, that we wouldn't get the same information. So full and fair disclosure was what we were behind. And Arthur Levitt, who was the chairman of the SEC at the time, came to The Motley Fool right after Reg FD passed by one vote and said, the reason I'm appearing at Full HQ today, one day later, is to thank you because you and your members, we got thousands of notes writing in for Reg FD. We normally get hundreds of notes. And of those thousands, the vast majority were from Motley Fool members saying, that doesn't make sense. It's not fair and it's not right. And so that was a great example of the Motley Fool uh, striking a blow for freedom of information in this case for all investors, not just a privileged few. So that feeling of, I mean, we are the Motley Fool. We started saying we're fools from the get-go, right? We're, we're not Wall Street, we're Main Street. And so that made a lot of sense for us to be behind that. And we've tried to do that in different ways ever since. I'm also happy to say that the world is a lot better today for individual investors like you and me. There's just much more information out there. There are there's social media, there are forums, like our discussion boards are a place I've learned so much about investing over the years. So for me, that's a great example in era one of the Motley Fool democratizing. In era three, now where we are, you know, I'll give another example, and that's just our venture capital fund. So we launched a venture capital fund a year ago, but we did it differently. Most of the world, and by the way, we deeply respect the world of venture capital. I know you know it pretty well. <laughs> so it's not like it was broken, but we did flip the model in a very capital F for us, foolish way. So in my experience, most venture capital funds try to have a few limited partners. They're usually institutional. They bring a lot of money. I'm not going to say old boys club here, but basically you've got like bigger players and just a few of them and a big and a fund gets launched and invested and brilliantly so because America does venture capital better than any country in the world. But what we decided to do was what if we democratize that? What if instead of having just a few people write really big checks, what if we had a lot of people write small checks? And so... That's what we did. And we had enough of them write it that we oversubscribed and got $150 million last year of pure just money from our member base. There's no institutional money in that at all. Our first fund and from 800 LPs. Now, 
for anybody who's in the venture capital industry, you may have just choked if you didn't, you may have just your jaw dropped because that just sounds insane. A lot of people are like, I don't want to have to, like managing my LPs is a pain. So I'll put 800 of them. But Olin Douglas, our fearless leader of the fund who came up with this idea and had this vision was like, no, let's actually have like a really wide network of people writing smaller checks. They're accredited investors. So you still have to have money to do this, but let's have like fun at our member meetings. Let's have a bash. Let's have hundreds of people and let's activate them within our companies. The companies that we invest in at a series early stage level, let's take the incredible wisdom and experience of the Motley Fool membership, which is a global membership and stretches across all industries. Let's have them activated within our companies. And so that's kind of what we've been doing. They also give us great ideas like, hey, I live in Silicon Valley, I see this. I live in Silicon Alley, I see this. I live in Hong Kong, I see this. And so we have this opportunity to kind of source things in a more democratized way. And with a bunch of people who, you know, for them, they probably can afford to lose that $100,000 check in a lot of cases that they wrote us. We sure, certainly hope that won't happen, but there's a sense of a love of taking risk, an enjoyment of each other, and of this foolish approach that we've taken to, in this case, democratizing an era three venture cap. Now, I wanna close that by saying, we're under no illusion that we're like a big dog, right? In the VC world, we're, we're a tiny player in the VC world, but it is a world that we feel like we understand with in some ways 26 years of history, because we've been picking public companies and with winning stock picks for, for a long time now. So why couldn't we apply a lot of the same principles to earlier stage and give our membership an opportunity for the first time to invest as a VC into private companies. So that's kind of what we're doing there. That's really interesting. And I can definitely see your value add as a strategic investor, especially on the early stage side with this broad network of LPs that you can offer your company. Thank you. But the thought of managing 800 LPs sounds like a nightmare to me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, for most financial capital companies, they usually have a smaller employee base and a lot of revenues per employee. I mean, it's very high margin with smaller teams. And that's just true of the industry. But for us, we're used to managing a huge subscription base, you know, numbered in the hundreds of thousands, not in the hundreds or the, you know, dozens. And so for us, it's actually not that hard. It's kind of just one click over from what we're already doing. And so in that sense, it's it's not a nightmare for us, but definitely for most firms, if you have like 10 principles, you know, and you're trying to have a, a beautiful offsite somewhere in the California mountains, you know, you're just going to be a small tight knit group, but we're like having a big party here in Washington, D.C. You guys could rent out a cruise ship. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if we did, it would be the ship of fools. No question about that. We haven't done that yet. <laughs> One of the things I like to ask founders, David, on the podcast is what are the key KPIs or metrics you use to gauge the health of the business? So curious what those are for you. Yeah, I mean, for us, just at a big picture level, pretty obvious things like what is our sales growth revenue top line growth? I mean, most of the great stocks that we've picked are companies that had high top lines. Amazon would be a good example of now 25 years and counting. So that's an obvious one for us. Since we are still mostly a subscription-based company, venture capital is a new model for us. We have several other new models in play right now, but another obvious one is just the renewal rate. Because when you're running a subscription, you know, we're not a SaaS company and we don't have renewal rates of SaaS companies. Sometimes I hear about, you know, they have 113% renewal rates because people are putting down even more money and fully resubscribing. I wish we had that kind of renewal rate, but at least within our industry, we have, we have a very good one. 
and uh, so renewal rates for us. And then I would say, you know, activity metrics. Are people popping open our emails? Are they engaging with the services in the site? These kinds of things. But the one I guess I want to focus on, which is a little subtler, but I would say very evocative of The Motley Fool and telling about us, are things about our culture internally. Because there's a whole conscious capitalism thread that we could or could not have in this conversation. And there's too many things to talk about in our brief time together. So we probably won't go down that track. But the importance of managing an enterprise for profit or not for profit for all of your stakeholders in a world where a lot of people still think the purpose of business is to maximize shareholder value. We've always disagreed. And conscious capitalism, and we're part of this movement, is in particular looks at all of your stakeholders and say, I hope you're creating a win for all of them. Not just taking one group, in this case, shareholders, and say, we're going to max it out for you all, right? So our employee stakeholder group is a critical one and has always been for us. And so I would say we're psycho good at the following two things, surveying our employees about how they're feeling and what they're suggesting to us. And then that's number one. And then number two, acting on what we learn to make things better. So we use a tool called Culture Amp, a company that we had in an earlier stage invested in because even though I mentioned our VC fund just starting a year ago, for five years up until then, we were using our own book, our own money on the balance sheet to invest in companies to get our feet wet or dip our toes into the venture capital world before we asked for external money. So one of our investments was in a company called Culture Amp. Basically, it's a company that helps you understand amplify the results of what your employees are telling you in your culture. And it's specifically for us, it's not just broadly asking, are you engaged at work or are you happy, which are critical questions. But even more importantly, it's telling you within different pockets or groups, like are women at the full happier or sadder than men at the full? Are employees who just joined in the last 12 months, how are they feeling about our company or their team or versus people who've been with us 10 plus years? And so forensically, Rather than just ask big, broad questions, which can be helpful, we ask much more targeted questions and then truly act off of whatever the worst things are we hear. We try to fix those. And the reason that people typically will respond to our surveys, you know, because I think we're all being over-surveyed in life, right? I mean, I'm not just talking about your own company or whatever. I'm talking about the experience you just had on someone's online site, just at some Amazon random shipper, and they're asking you to you know, what do you think? Would you recommend us to family and friends, right? So I think there's a huge amount of surveying going on. But the reason people do respond to our surveys, the fool, our employees, is because they know we're going to be making it better. And so that's a almost sacred relationship. So anyway, KPIs for us, key performance indicators, a lot of them are heavily culturally rooted beyond the obvious financial metrics that I gave in my shaggy dog answer to your question about seven and a half minutes ago. <laughs> Very rarely do we have a founder speak about internal metrics on culture. So I really appreciate you mentioning that as I think it speaks towards how important culture is for the fool. And it matters, especially for my generation, where I think we want all stakeholders as opposed to just shareholders to profit. And we're simultaneously balancing a good business with something that's good for society. So then honing in on those KPIs, you had mentioned before how tough retention can be in a B2C business. You bet. Are there any case studies or examples that come to mind of how you and the team have driven a higher retention rate? Well, I mean, we, we are constantly A-B testing everything at the full. So in fact, A-B testing for me, if I think of like the five big tropes of our age, I'm talking about like the last 25 years. To me, one of the big ones is A-B testing because the internet has made it possible 
to constantly do that. I know you know that. I know the vast majority of your listeners know that. I would say that we are psycho great at A-B testing at The Fool. And, you know, I mean, every bit of marketing that we send out, it'll be like one is in red shade, the other's in green shade. People click the red one, it's going to be red. And, you know, or language or offers or price testing, all of these kinds of things. It's hard for me to identify a single example of that, or it would give short shrift to that step function at an enterprise level of just the constancy of A-B testing driving results. So unfortunately, in some ways, I'm the wrong fool. You should talk to Jeremy Phillips at our company in some future broadcast. Jeremy has done a wonderful job basically building out our business, surrounded by many talented people. But you know, if you were to get somebody who's running digital marketing at The Fool or somebody who oversees those products and services, they would have a much better answer to your question. I did pre-think out an answer to that question, expecting it, but it was more along the lines of our culture which may be less familiar to, or less interesting to really. Oh, please do share. would love to hear that. Yeah, so first of all, our engagement at The Motley Fool is extremely high. At the dawn of the third era of our company, 2014, The Motley Fool by Glassdoor was named the number one company in America to work for that's a small, medium-sized company. And so that there are a lot of companies there. So we were shocked by that, but in a way we weren't shocked by it. We were shocked when we won a year later. We haven't won in a few years, but when you're competing against like 10,000 others, it's hard to be number one each time. But that was a great example of the importance that we've placed on engagement. So our engagement rate at The Motley Fool, this is another internal metric, happy to share, is 87%. You know, the average, the worldwide average, or you'll hear different numbers nationwide, is more like 33%, right? So that means that if you have a canoe and we have 10 employees in the canoe at the average company in America, Three of those are paddling forward. Five of them, Nielsen and other surveys will show, are just sitting there. They don't have a paddle or they have their paddle rest on their lap and they're just along for the ride. And then sadly, two of them are paddling backwards. They actively don't like the company that they work for. And that's kind of the worldwide average. So imagine if you could just flip one of those 10 in the boat to do something better like start paddling in the middle or stop paddling backwards in the back. So at this stage in our 26th year, we have nine of our 10 paddling forward and one is sitting there in the back. We hope that person will eventually paddle forward, but the difference between that and the worldwide average is just night and day in terms of what drives a business. And for us, I think a big uniting factor has been the purpose of The Motley Fool, which is to make the world smarter, happier, and richer. And those are really important words. I could bore you. We could have a branding thread to this and how at the first day that we launched on AOL in 1994, we said to educate, to amuse, and to enrich. And we met Jeff Bezos that year. And he's, I, lo I love that. He was looking at the front page of our site, educate, amuse, enrich. You say it right up front. And so if you think about those three words, and then you imagine a world 26 years later where we've been doing that, it sounds like a world that is educate smarter, amuse happier, and enrich richer. And we, what we say about our new purpose statement here is it's a great hail back to how we started, but it's also something where we have to do all three all the time. It's not enough to just be smarter or happier and richer. We need to, the Motley Fool, when we're rocking it, we're doing all three of those. So having that purpose, I think you could ask any one of our 380 employees today, what's the purpose of the Fool? And they would be able to nail that right off. And 10 years ago, if you'd asked our employees, we would have had 80 different answers from people, right? So 
higher purpose, which is part of conscious capitalism, but a higher purpose really unites people in a powerful way. And I think that's part of the big story behind that 87%. But the actual example I was going to give as a key performance indicator, and you already know that, you know, for us, it's engagement, employee engagement, key performance indicator. I think it's key for every business, large and small, every one of your listeners in an enterprise. That should be huge, I think, for all of us. So my brother, Tom, who's largely responsible for all of those numbers, he's our CEO for the last dozen or so years. He's been the CEO and, and seen us through to era three and the flourishing that we're experiencing. But he had this crazy idea last year. He said, let's have ask for a raise day. And so every one of our employees is encouraged to sign up with their manager and ask for a raise. And not only that, because you know some of us are introverts, some of us are extroverts. Some people do that as a matter of cause anyway. Some people are embarrassed to do that. Probably more people than you and I would expect are embarrassed to do that. <laughs> so Tom gave them an extra incentive. He said, the very act of you asking for a raise and having that meeting earns you $200, 200 bucks right off the top. Anybody who signs up for it, 200 bucks. And so that on its own lifted we basically got a 10 percentage point increase in the answer to this question. I believe my total compensation, which is base salary and benefits and equity and intangibles is fair relative to similar roles at other companies. So that happened in the course of just a few weeks and it's now 17 percentage points higher than other tech companies of a similar size to The Motley Fool. And so that's a good example of like a one-off initiative that the crazy co-founder and CEO, my brother Tom, had that the team responded, well, hey, let's test it and learn it. And you know, it's not like we got a 50 percentage point increase, or it's not like it changed the whole course of The Motley Fool. It's more of a kind of a, a little bet that we made, right? It's more of a micro example of what we're trying to do, A-B testing to the world on our websites or A-B testing internally with our employees, an example, one that worked. And if you can just get 1% better every day, it looks pretty awesome after a few years. In complete agreement with you there, where there really never is a silver bullet for improving situations, but instead it's a combination of tiny little steps. But that is such a succinct example of how you can increase engagement, empower your employees, and align incentives properly. So thank you very much for sharing that. Thank you. But want to be cognizant of our time here. We've got about 10 minutes where I'd love to spend on the last part of the podcast, which is framed after the title of the podcast, Pattern Recognition. So what do you think are the consistent patterns across successful subscription media companies? So I think that first of all, they probably have an engaging brand and service. I think it's very hard to really do well and grow a subscription business if you don't have a compelling product and then a sense of fun or, or people wanting to lean into your brand. So, and you know, I'm not gonna say we're world-class at this. I, I actually think we suck across a whole bunch of different dynamics. And I feel comfortable in saying that because I heard Reed Hastings say that a few years ago about Netflix. And I think that was pretty awesome, but he said, hey, I'm, you know, I'm the CEO. I know how badly we suck in every way that we suck. So I, I think we can get a lot better. I think we can sometimes make our emails shorter. I think we can enable people to opt out more. So, I mean, in a way we're amazing at marketing as a machine, but we're not always, I don't think, highly, totally respectful of people's time. And sometimes the voice of a marketing email from the Motley Fool won't sound as much like the voice of Dave or Tom, the founders. So I think there's a lot of improvement that we can make, but back to the product piece, I think we've offered a compelling subscription service because we did something daring. We said, the world is wrong. The conventional wisdom that you're hearing in academia, or you may have heard, I don't know, in your finance classes, whoever you are, 
that you can't beat the stock market if you pick individual stocks. That would just be luck. From day one, we think that that is flat out wrong. We don't see it in any other industry. I know you and I are both basketball fans. Nobody says, well, you know, to be a better than average basketball, that would just be luck, right? Or lawyer or doctor. But for some reason, the idea that, you know, picking stocks, you're just as likely to find monkeys throwing darts at a dartboard and finding winners than professional stock pickers. And we think from Warren Buffett, Peter Lynch, other, our dad, we've seen exemplars that that's absolutely not true. But And yet the whole world increasingly believes that. And things like Betterment, wonderful things, Betterment, Vanguard S&P 500 index, but everybody's mailing it in thinking, you know, there's no way to really beat the average. So from the get-go, we said, we think that's wrong. Watch us. And so we picked one stock every single month, each brother, since March of 2002, era two, as we kick off with the subscription, and we have destroyed the market averages, both of us. And it's all right there with every bad pick, because I've had a ton of them, and every good pick that Tom and I have made. And anybody who followed us basically could just buy that stock that month, hold, follow our advice. So there's a very compelling product there. And so to me, those are the key things for entrepreneurs within the subscription area. Of course, big data in this era of big data, that's a third thing beyond a great product and a brand that you want to work with that you admire, that you have fun with, you definitely, from our side, we need to be super good with our systems at seeing who clicked that email, who didn't, test and learn, let's try something new, it didn't work, great, we'll pull that back, constantly inventing. And that for us especially goes to maybe number four, which is it's not just about your product today or yesterday, it's what else are you enabling yourself to do? So we knew that if we succeeded with Motley Fool Stock Advisor, we could launch Motley Fool Rule Breakers, which today is our second largest service. And we weren't even contemplating when we made that million dollar bet you and I talked about 45 minutes ago, when we just tried Stock Advisor. All of a sudden, a couple of years later, we're able to launch another and another. We started to fill out a portfolio of services. So thinking bigger than just what your subscription is today, and also thinking bigger in terms of what people are willing to pay you if you do a good job and build loyalty with them over the course of time. So that's like a short course, I guess, in how to think about doing subscription better for entrepreneurs. And as you think about all the high-performing stock picks you've made since 2002, we had mentioned briefly before top-line growth seemed to be a consistent pattern. Are there any other patterns you see across your highest performers? Yeah, that's a great point. And, and thank you for grounding me back to pattern recognition, John, because that is how you started. I think I went off briefly and gave my thoughts on subscription. <laughs> no problem. But yeah, I mean, what have been our best stock picks over the last... Okay, so the following stocks have all returned 25 times or more for our members. And what I see is I see Activision Blizzard. I see Marvel that I picked back in 2002 that was bought out by Disney. So we would say Disney today, but it was really the first Spider-Man, if you remember, Tobey Maguire, yeah. 2002. So Activision Blizzard, Marvel, Priceline, Netflix, and Amazon. And Netflix has made us, our members, 199 times value. So 199 bagger, been a spectacular stock pick. Our cost on Netflix is a buck eighty-five. So, you know, seeing where it is today and comparing where we bought it, yeah. Where is it today roughly? It's like 367 as we speak. So a buck eighty-five for members who are listening to us back in that first year of era two. But you know, what pattern recognition do I see around that? Well, I see typically consumer brands. Every one of those. Today Priceline is called booking holdings and but I mean, each of those, Activision Blizzard, you know, my favorite video game company, Marvel, Disney, Netflix, Amazon. So what I see there are companies that you and I recognize. 
that are selling directly through to us to massive numbers of people. They're not like the fragile Motley Fool of era one where they only had a few customers, they're advertisers. These are companies, and I would say these companies delight people, right? Disney, Netflix, Amazon. I, I even thought that William Shatner's ads for Priceline back in the day were, were kind of delightful. You know, Activision Blizzard. And then a, a few of these are e-commerce. So I, I think that's just as relevant today. Every one of the companies we just talked about, I would buy their stock today and hold for the next 10 years. There's not a stock there that I just mentioned that I don't think is a winner of the next 10 years, right? And so that's another thing that I would say is the winners keep on winning. One of the themes, I have my own podcast, which is called Rule Breaker Investing, and my 2018 tongue-in-cheek, half-serious, half-joking, but half-serious line is the old cliche, winners win. John, what do winners do? They win. They win, exactly. And so every one of those stocks, as it rose 25, 50, 100 times in value, had been a winner. And at some point, somebody's like, well, that's already up eight times in value. Would I buy that again? Probably not. I feel like I missed it. But no, you should have been buying. You should be buying those today, right? So that's another pattern recognition I see, which is think about the stock market more broadly over the last century. It's kind of gone like that. If you see a graph of the Dow Jones from lower left to upper right, what all the consultants love, lower left to upper right, that's the stock market. It's going to do that over the next century, right? So things that make new highs, that shouldn't scare you. That should entice you. That should point out that something's winning. And what, John, do winners do? They win. <laughs> they win. They win. So there's a little bit more pattern recognition for you. And those are just, you know, some of our best stocks. I could look at my losers and see some patterns too, but that's for another podcast. I cannot agree with you more on the phrase winners win. And I think nowadays, especially in a technology driven industry, winning disproportionately and exponentially accrues to the winner, where it creates this virtuous cycle or this flywheel. And I think noting how you had mentioned that many of these stocks are consumer facing and they've got a really strong brand, to me, that breaks down to the first principles of having a massive market with outsized potential, right? Where Netflix hasn't even come close to penetrating the world's TV audience. Yeah. So another question, though, around stock picking, and that's around all of the work that you do leading up to actually picking a stock, or I think what we like to call the diligence process. Are there any consistent patterns in your pre-work in the times where you've made the right call? Have there been any consistent patterns in that diligence process? I'm going to say sadly not, because I have the same process that I run through every single time. I have for Stock Advisor, where I pick one stock a month, as I've mentioned, every month for 17 years. And then Rule Breakers, where I pick two stocks a month every month for 15 years. So that's a lot of stock picks. And I use the exact same process for both services. I have five analysts serving my, me on each service. I kind of farm out the ideas to them. I say, what about this one? You know, And they come from my own consumer experience, what I'm seeing on the net, uh, discussion board comments by people at, in full community. I'm also an early adopter, so I have like the closet full of failed tech devices. That's me as well. right? So that's kind of where I get my ideas. But then they go off and research them. I've written the template that they turn their research back into me. I look it over and I'm like, I like that one, right? And so every winner and every loser that I picked has basically gone through that. So I would not say at a process level, something different is happening. But I guess just to hit back on that winner's win theme again, this is stark and opens up most people's eyes and I hope rightly so. So here's a horrible statistic. In Motley Fool Rule Breakers, where I pick two stocks every month, since 2004, October, so that's a ton of stock picks. It's like 360 picks. About one in six of those, 59 of those have lost 50% or more. 
of our money. So you join Motley Fool Rule Breakers, you're like, I love this. Dave's a good stock picker. And one in six times, I've literally lost you 50% or more of your money. And if that sounds horrible and that I'm a jerk and I'm unprofessional, I understand why it might sound that way. Here's the good news though. The 59th best pick in Rule Breakers is up 294%. And that's the 59th best pick. The best pick, Mercado Libre, the e-commerce domineer in Latin America, on its own, as a 43 bagger, literally wipes out all 59 of those horrible losers by itself. That's great. Everything else is cream at that point. And so the key thing here, and the pattern recognition I wanna share is, you gotta lose to win. I mean, as a venture capitalist, we know this, you're gonna lose to win. And as a public market stock picker, as a mom and pop investor who may have followed The Motley Fool for one year or 25 years, you gotta be willing to lose. And a lot of people live in fear that they'll, that first stock will drop 10%. You know, but just think about that horrendous record I just gave you of loss. And yet Rule Breakers has crushed the market averages for our members over the course of time, all the way to stubbing our toe, or actually, I won't say stubbing our toe, breaking our both legs constantly on the way there, right? So it's about spreading your bets out. It's about a diversified portfolio, but it's about believing that you and I can, and in fact will beat the market in a world where most people are just mailing it in, sloshing big dumb money that's just chasing all the stocks when you and I can be selective, John, because John, what do winners do? They win. <laughs> That's the most important. Part. And specifically, I think the main takeaway here is that anyone who's a winner, whether it's a Ray Dalio or Michael Jordan, they're just as much of a loser, if not more loser than they are a winner. And the great winners out there are those who fight and learn through failure, who iterate and improve and grow and then eventually beat the market. So well put. Mike, whether it was Michael playing baseball for a, a year or two for the Chicago White Sox, which is unbelievable to think about, or for us to be a company that in 2001 laid off three quarters of its staff, had twice as much cost as revenue, and today through resilience and just A-B testing and 1% better, we're now at a place at all-time highs by every measure of our business. Certainly a strong stock market's always gonna help the Motley Fool, but I felt the sting of loss so many times. Again, cover of Fortune Magazine in my, you know, in the early days for the Motley Fool, within two days of us starting a newsletter for our parents' friends, and within three years of that cover, we're laying off three quarters of our staff. So we've seen it from both sides, and I'm sure there's gonna be some bad stuff ahead, and I hope some great stuff too. And we're gonna stay in the game, and play the long game, which is the only game that counts. Well, David, you've had a wonderful career and I'm so glad that you've got to share that with our audience here. So congratulations on the success today. And at some point, I am excited to have you on for a follow-up podcast. But thank you so much for the time. Once again, a big thank you to David for joining us today. If you're looking for an additional perspective on your stock portfolio, I encourage you to check out all the wonderful content David and his team publish. In the meantime, I have tweeted out our upcoming guest list on Twitter, which includes Sophia Amoruso from Nasty Gal and Girlboss, as well as Leah Busk from TaskRabbit. So I'd absolutely love if you could send in your questions, and I will look forward to giving you a shout out during those interviews. You can tweet at me at John Heasy, that is spelled J-O-H-N-H-E-E-Z-Y. So thank you all for tuning in, and I'll talk to you next week. Bye.